You guys doing well? Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church, as always. If you have your Bibles, or iPads, or iPods, or Androids, you can turn to Acts 21. We'll start at verse 37, work our way all the way to chapter 22, all the way through chapter 22. This is how our How It Changes Everything teaching series, and we're going to talk about identity theft this morning. You guys doing well? Cool. Identity theft costs Americans millions. But there's a more serious identity theft that will cost you what money can't buy. That's what we're going to talk about today. And in fact, it is understanding your identity in Christ. It's absolutely essential to your success at living the Christian life. A number of verses immediately come to mind when I think about our identity in Christ, and uh, there's a number of favorite verses. One that stands out to me is the one that's found in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. Maybe you're familiar with it. You've probably heard me quote it many times before. Uh, Peter is writing to second-generation Christians, um, and he says this. <clears throat> he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, You believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. I love that. That is good. The second generation Christian is because he was a first generation Christian. He encountered Christ. He writes about that in in 2 Peter 1, verse 16. This is what he says. He says, we did not give to you cunningly devised fables when we... uh, conveyed to you the power uh, and, the, and the beauty, really, the power and the beauty, the person and the work of Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So here Peter was an eyewitness of his majesty. You would understand why he would have unspeakable and glorious joy. But now he's talking to people who are second generation Christians and says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you... Do not see him now. You believe in him and you're filled with an inexpressible glorious joy. I believe that inexpressible glorious joy is what happens when someone is living in the reality of their identity in Jesus Christ. So could that be said about you? Unspeakable would mean, I don't know how to put words to this. It is so overwhelming. And glorious means weighty. The word glory means weight, significance, importance. In other words, this surpasses, this is incomparable, this is beyond your wildest dreams, this is the most amazing thing that has ever happened to you. Unspeakable, glorious joy. Are you living in the reality of that? Probably not, just like me. We need a lot of help, don't we? In fact, I'm convinced that you and I, through Jesus Christ, have everything We need to live the kind of life that everyone dreams of. I believe that God has invited us into a life through his son, Jesus Christ, that is unshakable, unbreakable, unstoppable. I believe the life that we have in Jesus Christ and understanding our identity in him is that it gives us the acceptance, the significance, the security that everyone on this planet Everyone here is killing themselves to try to get, and we have it through Jesus Christ. Amazing. Are you living in the reality of it? 
If you are, you would have unspeakable, glorious joy. That would, that would be how you would explain it. That's how you would describe it to those around you. But oftentimes, too often, we're not living in the reality of it, so we need some help, don't we? Would you agree? How many would say, hey, I could use some help in living in the reality of that so that my life could be, could be actually described as someone who has unspeakable, glorious joy? Well, that's for us this morning. Let's dive in. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's take a moment and pray. I'd like to pray another favorite verse of mine, 1 John 3, 1, and... Uh, you know, I'm sure that maybe you're familiar with it. If not, you'll, you will be after I'm done praying here. So, God, we thank you so much for, for all that you've given to us and your amazing grace. And as 1 John 3, 1 says, How great is the love that you have lavished upon us, that we should be called your children. What an amazing thought. That alone should give us unspeakable, glorious joy. And too often we don't live in the reality of the fact that we're, we're your kids, you're our daddy. And that you love us with an everlasting love, an amazing love. And you've poured your grace and mercy into our lives. How great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. God, too often we don't live in the reality of that. We know it objectively but not subjectively. So God, we pray this morning you would make it more real to us. That we would experience your love. We would know We would know beyond anything that we are your children and we would understand more clearly our identity in you that would bring about unspeakable, glorious joy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Take a look at your notes. We're going to study a little bit differently. Oftentimes we go back and forth between these two ways of studying. Sometimes we read completely through the text. This morning we'll take a chunk at a time. And then we'll make our points as we work through this. We're talking about identity theft, obviously, as I've already said. We're talking about our identity in Christ, how we can begin to live more in the reality of what Christ has for us. As you remember where we left the story last time, verse uh, chapter 21, we'll be picking up our study in verse 37. But remember, Paul was, uh, was in the temple. He was trying to build a bridge of credibility to the Jews there uh, so that he could speak some truth to them. But they didn't uh, take that. Uh, they didn't like that, and so there was this mob crowd grabbed a hold of him, began to drag him outside of the temple, began to beat him and tried to kill him, and then uh, he is rescued by the tribune. The tribune is the highest ranking Roman official in Jerusalem along with the praetorians, some guards, and so they're, they're picking him up and trying to carry him out of this crowd. That's where we pick up the story, verse 37, and as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune... May I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? And are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? So this is the tribune speaking to Paul, asking him. He's got this mistaken identity with Paul. He's saying, aren't you this guy that did these things, this Egyptian who recently stirred up revolt, led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. And notice how Paul corrects him by establishing his identity. Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, Cilicia, a a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people and when there was a great hush he answered them in the hebrew language saying and that's the end of that chapter so let's stop there let me give you kind of a foundation of some understanding of what uh, identity is here's your first fill in the blank on your notes everyone is building their identity on something 
Everyone is building their identity on something. Everyone here is building their identity. Everybody on planet Earth is building their identity on something. Now, here's my question for you. Why don't you fill in the blank? Take a look up here. Are you, is who you are, your identity, determined by what you do, or is what you do determined by who you are? In other words, what is the basis of your identity? Now, I'm going to tell you what I would say that probably how you're building your identity, just like I am, like Americans uh, throughout this nation and then people throughout this world. The natural default mode within our hearts is to build our identity, who we are, based on what we do. That's natural, that's natural and typical to our lives. So if I, if I acquire certain things, accomplish certain things, achieve certain status in life, I feel really good about myself. That's typically how we build our identity. But actually the Bible says that you are not to build your identity based on that, based on what you do. That your identity is actually, uh, what you do is to come, is to be determined by who you are. You guys following me on that? It's, it, it's, it's critical to understanding the foundation of your identity. Because the majority of the time we are building our identity, we feel good or we feel bad based on what we have done, as opposed to who we are, and then we do based on who we are. I mean, so, so, it's, so what we do tends to flow, doesn't tend to flow out of who we are and our identity in Christ. It tends to work the other way. By the way, you need to know that every major cult and religion of our world today tends to build the person's identity based on what they do. Who you are is what you do. Live up to these standards, and you are a good person. The gospel message is completely the opposite of that, is the antithesis of that. Here's the gospel message, and this is the book of Acts. So this is a small group of people that begin to discover their identity in Christ. It's who we are in Christ. What he did for us so ravishes our lives, then out of that we do what we do. If you reverse that, it's called religion, and it's extremely unhealthy, and you're on a wild roller coaster ride with your identity. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to unpack that. And what are the implications of that? Here, here's what's interesting. And, and this is where a lot of people, uh, what's interesting too in a lot of our American churches that we typically motivate people out of what is known as common virtue, out of fear and pride. If you do these things, hey, you're a good person. And we celebrate that. And it's motivated out of fear and pride. Uh, by the way, fundamentally you must the cross deals with what is fundamentally wrong with our hearts and the fundamental issue of our hearts is egocentricity it is that we want to make life all about us it's self-centeredness so if you don't deal with the self-centeredness you can actually be a very very bad person or also a very very good person based on self-centeredness so you can actually, so that's the reason why the Bible, the Bible doesn't talk, in fact, Christianity and the gospel is not about moralism, about being a good person. It's about, it's about people who are dead, who come alive to the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. And out of that, then we begin to respond to life accordingly. If you reverse that, uh, it's, it's religion and you've missed You've missed it, and typically it's fear and pride that's probably motivating you as opposed to a heart smitten by the beauty of Jesus. 
So let me ask you the question. If you think about why you do what you do, are you doing that? that, That's a good question to always ask. When I get up here, when I do anything, when I minister to people, am I doing this because, you know, they're going to think much of me or look at me, I'm I'm a great pastor, or look at... That's wrong. That's misplaced identity. No, it should be out of the beauty of who Jesus is and what he says about me. It's already been established. He loves me. It's amazing how much he thinks of me. And he's giving me fullness of life and so out of that I begin to minister um, and so that's important to, I mean that's just that's just square one so everyone is building their identity on something and so what we have to do is we got to make sure that we're building our identity out of the cross and out of that then we respond to life here let me take you to the next point your identity is what gives you a sense of meaning and purpose and so when we when we read this first part he was asking him do you Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of assassins? Why would these people do this out into the wilderness? Because everyone is looking for a meaning and purpose. Identity answers life's most basic questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Every person must find some way to justify their existence. Otherwise, you have no reason for living. You get out of bed in the morning because there's something that drives you out of bed in the morning. All I was saying with that first point is that ultimately your identity has to be about the glory of God and not your own personal glory. Otherwise you're living, you know, otherwise you're, you're just reinforcing the self-centeredness, which is the wickedness and evilness in all of our hearts rather than a God-centeredness. Now, the classic example that I've used as it relates to this point here is the Rocky. You guys have heard it many times before. I'll use it again. Rocky, first Rocky movie. His girlfriend's name was what? Adrian, that's right. Some of you had a little accent there when you said that. So Adrian, his girlfriend Adrian asked Rocky, why is it so important for you to go the distance in the boxing match? How many remember his response? He says this, he replies, then I'll know I'm not a bum. So why was Rocky fighting? Why was he boxing? For his own glory. It was self-centeredness. That way I won't know, then, then, then I won't be a bum if I can just go the distance. So, I mean, he could have fought if he would have fought because he knows his identity in Christ and that was an opportunity because God has made me a good fighter and I'm going to put on display his glory. That's the way you live your life. But he was desperate to find acceptance, significance, security that, we can, be, that can be found in Jesus Christ. So he was, he was living his life for his glory rather than the glory of God. And so your identity is what gives you a sense of meaning and purpose. And every one of us really says that about something. Every one of us says that if I can accomplish this, if I can acquire that, if I can achieve this, if I have these accolades from these people, I'll know I'm not a bum. Everyone says that. About something other than Jesus. It's natural and normal for us. That's part of the sinfulness of our heart. I'll know I'm not a bum. I'm a special person. Time out. There is, there is unbelievable value and dignity and honor because of what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross. That's all you need. That's the trump card right there. Boom. But see, we don't live in the reality of that. Um, here's the next point identity apart from God is inherently unstable in the essence of sin 
So when we try to build our identity apart from God, it's inherently unstable in the essence of sin. Uh, here's some illustrations. It's been a few years since I've used them, so let me use them again. Here, uh, this is from Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God, Belief in an Age of Skepticism. Let me just kind of walk through these and uh, see if I can work you over a little bit with some of these. You'd probably be able to see yourself in some of these uh, statements as it relates to, uh, so identity apart from God is inherently unstable in the essence of sin. Uh, For instance, if you center your life and identity on religion and morality, you will, if you are living up to your moral standards, be proud, self-righteous, and cruel. That's the reason why I said that the gospel is not about moralism, about being a good person. Because when you begin to hit the standards, you feel very smug, very proud, and you'll look down on those that aren't. That's, you, that's the making of an elder brother, 15th chapter of Luke. He despised the younger brother who had went out and you know, lived like hell and got rid of dad's, in, his inheritance from dad and just did whatever he wanted to do. He just despised uh, the younger brother. And, and he, was a, he was basically a Pharisee. And that's the making of a Pharisee. So if you center your life and identity on religion and morality, you will, if you are living up to your moral standards, be proud, self-righteous, and cruel. If you don't live up to your standards, your guilt will be utterly devastating. So if you're a moralist and very religious person, when you live up to the standards, you're going to feel very self-righteous and look down on others. And then if you're not, you're going to be in despair. You'll just beat the heck out of yourself. Here's another example. If you center your life and identity on a noble cause, you will divide the world into good and bad and demonize your opponents. Just think talk radio and think of uh, politics right there. Think of politics. Listen to this. So if you center your life and identity on a noble cause, think politics, you will divide the world up into good and bad and demonize your opponents. Isn't that what they do on talk radio? I mean, there's so much grumbling that goes on in talk radio. It's like, come on, come up with some solutions. Quit being part of the problem by grumbling all the time. I mean, a lot of the stuff that's out there, they're not helping the situation. They're being very pious and self-righteous and demonizing everybody else that's not aligning up with them. Rather than to look at problem, look at, you know, where the problem really lies. And so it's, it's part of our mindset. And so it, he, goes, he goes on, he says, ironically, you will be controlled by your enemies Without them, you have no purpose. So if you center your life and identity on a noble cause, you will divide the world into good and bad and demonize your opponents. Ironically, you will be controlled by your enemies. Without them, you have no purpose. Here's another one. You, if you center your life and identity in, on relationships and approval, it's called codependency, people approval, things like that, you will be constantly overly hurt by criticism and thus always losing friends. You will fear confronting others and therefore will be a useless friend. You can't confront people. You can't speak truth to people. Here's another one. If you center your life and identity on pleasure, gratification, and comfort, that's the Southwest, that's we live here in the pleasure, kind of pleasure capital, valley of the sun, all the great days. We're heading into the great time of the year here. And so if you center your life and identity on pleasure, gratification, and comfort, you will find yourself getting addicted to something. You will become chained to the escape strategies by which you avoid the hardness of life. I mean, so the list goes on. I mean, look at marriage. I did this for years. If you center your life and identity on your spouse or partner, how she looks or how she performs, 
how she responds to you, you will be emotionally dependent, jealous, and controlling. The other person's problems will be overwhelming to you. If you center your life and identity on your family, children, ooh, that's a good one in traditional settings. In fact, we even preach that. We almost preach a form of idolatry through our kids. That their success is tied to our identity. Wrong. If you center your life and identity on your family and children, you will try to live your life through your children until they resent you or have no self of their own. At worst, you may abuse them when when they displease you. I mean, so you can see, if you're not motivated appropriately, you're going to respond to the situation wrongly. Here's the next point on your notes. So your identity must go deeper than name, nationality, what you do, where you live, and the roles you play. Paul certainly uses, you know, the trump card, and you're going to see this as we study this, Roman citizenship, but he's going to take us in our study much deeper than Roman citizenship. He's going to talk about his heaven citizenship that, that is an anchor to his soul that gives him the ability to navigate through the difficulties of life. But your identity must go deeper the name, nationality, what you do, where you live, and the roles you play. If, if I were to ask you, if you were to ask me, who are you? I said, I'm Ray Davis. No, that's your name. Who are you? I'm an American. No, that's your nationality. Who are you? I'm a pastor. No, that's what you do. Who are you? I'm a part of Western Meadows. No, that's where you live. Who are you? I'm a husband and a father. No, those are the roles you play. Who are you? Your identity must go deeper than all of those. Those are all part of your identity, but your, de- your identity must go deeper. I must have an identity that transcends all of these lesser identity factors. Christian, being called a Christian, is a great noun, but a very poor adjective. Oftentimes we want to use it as an adjective. I'm a, I'm a Christian paramedic. Uh, that's an adjective. No, you're a Christian who happens to be a paramedic. You happen to be a pastor. See, the reason for that is because all of these are subject to change. What if your last name was Madoff? Bernie was your dad. I'll tell you what what happened is that one of the sons committed suicide because of that. If you're familiar with the story, you know, he was uh, Bernie Madoff, greatest Ponzi scheme in the history of, of America. His son couldn't bear the shame and the guilt, killed himself. And his other son, I saw the interview on 60 Minutes last weekend, and uh, he didn't want to have anything to do with his dad. He said, I will never be able to forgive my dad. Bitterness, anger. So if your identity is in your name, I mean, your name, boom. If it's in being an American, what if you become a missionary and you go to one of these places where they hate Americans? Which is a lot of places, really. If you look throughout the world, there's a lot of places out there. Uh, When I tell people that I'm a pastor... They shy away. They just, they clam up. They shut up. It's really quite interesting with that. And and you could go through. Those are all subject to change. So here's my question for you. How do you know if you have misplaced your identity? How do you know when you've misplaced your identity? I don't know if you saw this. uh, I think they they had several million hits on this video this last week. I'm going to show it here. Just a moment, but it was a video. I ate all of your Halloween candy. Anybody see that? Show of hands. Okay, here's what I want you to do. When you watch this video, see these parents told their kids that they ate all of their Halloween candy. I want you to see how the kids respond. It's a crack up. 
But what's, uh, what's interesting is I want you to see if you can identify the difference between sorrow and despair. Okay? So that's what you have to identify with. It's okay to be sorrowful when, a, when you lose a good thing. But when a good thing has become an ultimate thing in your life, you're going to have despair. When that good thing has become idolatry, some form of idol in your life, then you're going to have the despair. And you're going to see it in this video. Watch this and we'll talk about it. Okay. That's good, huh? How many sneaky moms and dads do we have in the house here, huh? You go through your kids' candy at night while they're in bed, pick out all the good stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. So did you notice the difference between despair and sorrow? These last guys were kind of wanting to lecture mom, weren't they? Isn't that interesting? It's just kind of like they're going to lecture mom, and they were just kind of taking it in stride. It's interesting the different responses, but the different responses reveal how much you attach your heart to something. And when you attach your heart to something, something that's good, it can be a good thing that's elevated to an ultimate thing, and it becomes a, a God thing, idolatry. And so when that is being uh, threatened, you're going to have inordinate anxiety. When it's blocked, somebody's getting in the way of that, you're going to have inordinate anger, bitterness. When it's lost, you're going to be depressed. So it's important to kind of know where you are. You remember I talked about being fully in the dot. You are here. So where are you? When things are happening in your life, you have to explore that. Why am I going off the rails? Just some dumb old candy. You know, it's like, we'll get more. But there are some things that it's okay to be really, really sad. I went to a funeral yesterday. And it was sad. But we don't grieve like the world grieves. We grieve with hope. And that funeral was filled with hope. Because this guy knew Jesus. And we all know that we will see him again. And the way that he exited was amazing. And so the, the, the family was sad, but they weren't in despair because of the hope of Jesus. So, I mean, you can go through extremely bad stuff and yet have a sense of hope and joy and peace in the midst of that. But you've got to be in touch with where you are. And too often we medicate those feelings rather than to try to feel. You can't heal what you don't feel. You've heard me say that before. We talk about that. So you've got to kind of be in touch with that, kind of feel that, and then allow Christ to meet you there in the midst of that. And that's where we begin to make those. And we're going to, let's talk about that. How do, we, how do we shift our identity when we begin to recognize that? Let's continue reading verses uh, 1 through 11, chapter 22. So that took us to chapter 22, brothers and fathers. So here's Paul talking to them. And I want you to listen to what he has to say. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in, in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel. So he's really kind of giving his credentials and really his identity, but it's, 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 he's actually doing it to build a bridge, credibility, so that they'll listen to him. And we know Paul, he didn't put a lot of weight on, on these credentials. We, when you read in Philippians 3, he basically called them what? Dung, yeah. He called them dung. This is nothing compared to my credentials in Jesus. So we know that, but he's only doing this to build a bridge of credibility so he can speak into their life. And then he goes on, according to the strict manner of the law. So I, I, I studied at the feet of Gamaliel, and according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day, I persecuted the way to the death, binding and delivering 
to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness from them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to punish them now here's what's interesting everybody look up here just a minute Paul persecuted the church he killed Christians and then he became a Christian, and now he's, he's going to be standing side by side by Christians in the church worshiping God. How would you get over that kind of an identity in the past of killing Christians, knowing that you're next to Christians, you know, family members that you murdered? Well, he was able to make that obvious identity switch because he's the one that wrote in Romans 8, chapter 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. He was able to experience the freedom. So no matter what you've done in the past... You can be set free from the guilt and shame of that. I mean, it's pretty amazing. Because it comes to a, a new identity, an identity shift. And that's what we see, Paul, because he's going to talk about his encounter with Christ here. And it, he has this crisis of identity. Major change happens. So as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for, for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. Stop there for a minute. Let me give you the next point on your notes. Um, here's your next point. An encounter with Christ, becoming a Christian is about having a major identity crisis. So that's what happened to Paul. He has this, he's talking about this identity crisis that he had. And so I gave you some verses there to help you to understand that. 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, Those that are in Christ have become a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Your past is gone. Now you have a new potential, a new privilege, new promises, new power, the presence of God in your life. It also tells us 2 Corinthians 5.21, which is a fabulous verse. He who knew no sin, talking about Jesus, he who knew no sin, became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So all of our sin was placed upon Jesus on the cross so that to this day, I stand before God completely righteous. All is well between God and I, regardless of what I've done yesterday or what I'm going to do today. So that makes me want to live for his glory. See, that what that does is it... it it ravishes my heart with his love. No kidding. I stand before you completely righteous. That is amazing. And I can't foul that up. No, you can't. So that's, that's part of that new identity. And then Galatians 2.20 talks about identifying with this substitutionary atonement. Theological phrase, really an important phrase. We identify with the substitutionary death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Is what we're doing when we're being baptized. We're identifying with what he did for us. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but it's Christ who lives in me in the life that I now live. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So I have a new motive. I, I live for different reason. You know, I'm not, it's not about me. It's not about making much of me. It's about making much of God. My whole life is. So whether or whatever I do, it's, it's always about putting on display his glory. And, uh, and so let me continue reading. Let's read on verses 12 through 16. So, 
and one Ananias, so he's, so Paul was blind, he was led to Damascus, and now we move into the next part of the story, and one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me, and standing by me, said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. Now, Ananias is going to give us some really, uh, some really great insight here in the next uh, verses 14, 15, and 16 of what our identity in Christ, our heavenly identity kind of looks like. It's just going to give us just a taste, just a quick taste. See if you can identify some of these uh, blessings that we have in Christ because they're really innumerable, but he kind of lays out some of them. Look at what he says. And he said, this is Ananias to, to Saul who becomes Paul, the God of our fathers appointed you. What is he talking about there? You were chosen by God. It fits under the, under the heading of predestination. He, he predetermined he's going to pick you. He chose you. If you want him, oh, he wanted you before you wanted him. The only reason why you want him is because he wanted you. He's drawn your heart to him. I mean, that's amazing. You've got to be kidding. The very fact that I would even turn my head towards God and want him is because he's working in me and he's drawing my heart to him. That's what he's talking about there. The God of our fathers appointed you, notice this, to know his will. Oh my goodness, his will. His word is the best way to live. It's awesome. It's an unbelievable way to live. And then he goes on from there. He says, um, where am I? Right here. Okay, to know his will, to see the righteous one. To see the righteous one. Who's the righteous one? Jesus. Jesus. To have eyes to see the beauty and the glory of Jesus. The God-man, God in the flesh, came to this earth to rescue you and I. Not everybody has those eyes to see. Did you know that? Because to those who are perishing, it's, it's, a, it's appalling, this whole idea of crucifixion. It tells us that in the first chapter of Corinthians. They're offended by it. But to us, it's, it's beautiful. It's amazing. It's, it's breathtaking. And the only reason why you say that is because he's given you eyes to see Jesus. And then he goes on, he says, to hear a voice from his mouth, to hear him speak to you. You've had those times when you just sense, oh my goodness, that's God speaking to me. That's what he's talking about there. We have interaction with the king and the God of the galaxies, that he speaks to us, he directs our lives, he loves us, he cares for us. The thoughts he thinks about us are innumerable. They outnumber the grains of sand on the seashores, it says in Psalm 139. The feelings he has towards us. His activity in directing our lives in such a way to bring about our good and his glory. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. I mean, there's just numerous things here that he's talking about here. Verse 15, for you will be a witness. That's what God has called us to be, to put on display, to be a display case of God's beauty and glory for him to every one of what you have seen and heard. It's to come out of an experience. Once we've filled our hearts up with God, then we show the world. It's not we show the world to somehow appease God. No, we have his, his pleasure. We have his blessing. We have his grace. And then out of that, our hearts are filled up to show the world. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, forgiveness of sins, calling on his name, calling on his character, trusting in his character. He will never leave you or forsake you. He was always there for you. <laughs> That's amazing. You have any idea what you have in Jesus Christ? If you did, it would change everything about you. And how you do life. And so let's stop there. Let me give you some more fill in the blanks here. Here's the next point on your notes. We all need people in our lives that help to reinforce our identity in Christ. So who's your Ananias? 
Do you have any Ananiases in your life? People that are, that, and we've talked about that. We need the acceptance and the affirmation and the, and the affection of Christians. But more importantly, we need those Christians to point us to the, the ultimate affection and uh, acceptance and affirmation of Christ and the cross. That's more important. Next point on your notes, our identity is an immediate status change. And the moment we put our faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, that gives us everything we need for fullness of life in him. We already went kind of through some of those blessings. So immediately when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, oftentimes I'll ask people, so are you a Christian? And I've heard people say this, I think so. There's no thinking so, okay? You either are or you aren't. It's kind of like being pregnant. You're either pregnant or you're not pregnant, okay? I mean, there's no, there's no two ways about it. Either you've put your faith in Jesus, and right then, you have all the blessings of heaven, or you haven't. See, that's, that's that immediate status change. But here's the problem. It's the next point on your notes. The status change is objectively immediate, but subjectively, it must be worked into every area of our lives. That's, that's the issue. So we spend our life trying to work that through into every area of our lives. We have, as I've said, we have innumerable blessings, spiritual blessings, but haven't fully realized these innumerable spiritual blessings. It's one thing to, to have them. It's another thing to realize them in our lives. Because otherwise, if we begin to realize these, we would be, right now, you would be, if you realized all the spiritual blessings that you have in Jesus Christ, you would be perfectly happy. You would be perfectly courageous. You would be perfectly content. Because you have everything you need in Jesus Christ. But see, what's happened is that because you're not, it's because you have misplaced your identity. You're putting it in other things other than Jesus. You're doing the thing that I said at the very beginning. You're building your sense of identity on what you do as opposed to what you do coming out of your identity. We do it all the time. It's the default mode of our heart. We naturally go that way. And so when, when we don't accomplish, acquire, get what we think we need, we are bummed out. And we're saying, and, and what the gospel is saying, hey, wait, 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 your identity is in me. Whether this went up or down or whatever happened, whether you have success or failure, you can still do that for my glory. Because you're not living for you, you're living for me. You already have all that you need in me. Therefore, whatever goes down in your life, by the way, don't you think that that would cause you to want to live even that much more and push yourself, but not to the, to the point of obsessive compulsive disorders you know to where you're desperate for these things but you'll you'll have limits within your life therefore you won't be driven to perfectionism or workaholism you'll have good healthy boundaries i mean that's that's what creates a good healthy boundaries because your identity is not in your work the reason why we don't have boundaries is because we we need this i desperately need this we we push ourselves way beyond all of these because we're trying to fill a void within us that only christ can fill and so i mean that's so what we have to do, and this is what I do. Let me just kind of walk you through the process. I just want to get real practical to you because I struggle with this as much as you do. What would you say is the idolatrous scoreboard for a pastor like me? Anybody? You can yell it out to me. It's okay. You won't offend me? Okay. Somebody said numbers. How many of you think it would be numbers? I said idolatrous, okay. This is, that's idolatrous, by the way, to be focused on numbers and the amount of money given. Typically, when you get around other pastors, a lot of times that's what they talk, talk. Last time I was around a couple of pastors, that's all they wanted to talk about. And I felt really bad. I felt really bad. And then the Lord convicted me. 
And, and here's, here's typically what happens and what has happened to me. And this happened a number of years ago, but then I had this, this experience about a year and a half ago and I was around a couple of pastors and that's all they wanted to talk about. And I was like, I was appalled. But I was still offended, and I shouldn't even have been offended. I could have redirected the conversation, but I really didn't have time and didn't have that opportunity. But what was interesting, this happened to me a number of years ago, and I would be really elated when the numbers were up, you know, uh, numerically, how many people showed up on weekend services, and then how much money was given. I'd be like, woo! And then when I started driving, oh! And the Lord convicted me and said, I died for you. Your identity is not in those numbers. You see, if I make my identity in the numbers, what, what do pastors typically do? And I've seen them do this. They sell out. Well, we need to have a soft message because the message is too hard. We need to get more people in here. We need to entertain. We need to be manipulative. We need to be coercive. We need to, that's, that's what pastors do. And I've heard pastors say, hey, the goal is to get people in here. No, the goal is to make disciples. The goal is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And my identity is already established. I'm not going to hammer you to try to make me feel better. I already feel better in Jesus. I want you to see Jesus. So it's not about me. I mean, I mean, I mean you could actually do this. Let's work on Pastor Ray's identity in Christ. Let's not show up today and not give any money. <laughs> Don't do that, okay? God doesn't need any help. Okay? But I mean, so what do you do? So when you see yourself going off the rails, so I'd walk out of there and I could have been, how dare those guys? You know, those guys shouldn't be talking about that. And then I'd be very self-righteous. That's very self-righteous. I'm just as guilty as they are just to, to chastise them. Instead, I should say, hey, wait a minute. That should be water on a duck's back if I understood what he's done for me on the cross. But Jesus, I know I'm not living in the reality of that. Please forgive me. I repented. I confessed that. I said, oh, Jesus, help me to see you more clearly. <laughs> help me to know what, what you offer me. You see, understand this, that if, if you have his identity, I went through a list of things and I just, I was thinking the impact of the betrayal of a spouse, the backstab of a friend, the rebellious hatred of a son or a daughter is greatly reduced, not eliminated, but it's greatly reduced in light of your identity in Christ. It hurts, but you're not devastated because there's a difference between sorrow and despair. And you know the difference. And, and so when you find yourself in that despair, like, oh, and you hear what you're saying, and you're, you're off the rails, and you've got this extreme response, it, you just reel it in. You say, oh, my goodness, I'm not living in the reality of what I have in you, Jesus. I've misplaced my identity. And so uh, let's continue. Uh, I mean, I, I was thinking about this even as it relates to why are you so upset that the Arizona Cardinals haven't won a game since their very first one? <laughs> oh, that hurts. Some of you guys woke up right then. Boom. Why? Why would that so upset you? So when you find yourself, why are you so angry at the person that pulled out in front of you? I had to deal with that in my life. I would want to run people off the road in Jesus' name. <laughs> oh my goodness. It's like it's messed up. I had to start getting in touch with that. I'm a much better driver now. Every once in a while I get a little flash of wanting to go crazy, but... Here, let's, let's continue reading. We've got a couple more sections to read. So verses 17 through 21. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. So God's speaking to him. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in, in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. 
And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by, the, by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Do you get a sense that maybe uh, Paul uh, isn't really understanding lordship yet? Do you understand that? He's arguing with God. Did you notice that? That's what he's doing. He's like, well, but God, you're telling me to go? No, wait a minute. Wait, wait a minute. So here's the next point on your notes. Our identity change in Christ is fundamentally about lordship. It's fundamentally about lordship. Listen to what Rebecca Pippert says in her book, Out of the Salt Shaker. She says, whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the, person, by the people he or she wants to please. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. And everyone has a Lord of their lives. And it's important to make Christ the Lord of your life. So what is or who is ruling your life? God does not exist... To serve my purposes and your purposes, but, he, but I exist to serve his purposes. Let me give you a little secret here. Come up a little bit closer here, okay? Come here. Listen to this. When you listen to a lot of the, the national preachers and teachers, try to figure out if they're teaching you that God is here to serve your purposes or if you're here to serve his purposes. There's a major difference. The one will wreck your life. The one that he's here to serve your purposes. Because when he doesn't jump through the hoops the way that you think he should, you're out of there. That's not Christianity. You're here to serve his purposes. No matter what goes down, it's about his glory. And there's not a more satisfying life than that. He's not here to jump through your hoops. So you don't, that's, and that's what Paul, Paul's arguing with him a little bit. Hey, 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 you know, but what about this God? Well, he's, he says at the end, go, go. So it's, it's pretty interesting. Here's some, here's a, just a list of questions here. Let me just knock these out real quick and then we're going to, we'll be finished. I'm going to read a little bit more, but here's some questions to think about as far as it relates to lordship. And I've had to work through these in my own life. Still do. Here's a test is am I willing to obey God in every area of my life regardless of how I feel? See, it has to do with lordship. Is he truly the Lord of my life? Well, yeah, but that was really a long time ago and things are different. No, no. No, there's, there's standards that are just the same and meant to be for today. Here's another question. Am I willing, this is a hard one for me, am I willing to thank God for whatever happens in my life regardless of whether I understand it or not? Man, it doesn't look like God's doing anything. He is. He loves you. He's in control. Yeah, but I don't see really anything happening. He still is working. Can you thank him for that and believe that he's in control of your life and he's working? You can trust his loving, wise control of your life. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Don't lean upon your own understanding. Oh, my goodness. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He'll direct your paths. He's in control. He's working in your life. You can't see it. That's why it says live by faith, not by sight. Okay, another question here. Is there anything in my life that I am relying on for my hope and meaning more than God? Well, mine was attendance and finances. Oh, my goodness. That's crazy. Yeah, if these things are going well, then I'm going to feel good about myself. Baloney, I have him. I have all that I need. Here's the last question. Are there problems or limitations in my life that I think are too big for God to remove? Lordship, do you have a hurt habit or hang-up that you think that there's no way that he can touch? He can. You don't understand lordship. 
You don't understand how powerful and great he is and how much he loves you. Here's the last section of scripture, verses 22 through 30. We'll wrap up the rest of, the, the rest of this chapter here. And up to this word, they listened to him, and then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging. You know how severe that is. To find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips. I love this. This is good. Paul said to the centurion who was standing by. So he's about ready to beat him. uh, Begin to flog him. And this is what Paul says. Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? I love it. When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune. And said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. Now check this out. Notice their response. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. They kind of draw back. And the tribune also was afraid for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. So a lot of clout. He throws out the, the, you know, the big trump card. I'm a Roman citizen. Let, let me tell you something. That is nothing compared to what we have, that we are citizens of heaven. These guys are all freaking out over that, but that's nothing. You're God's kid. You're his child. Oh my goodness. He's got you covered. He will take care of you. If they knew who they were messing with, when they were messing with you, they would be drawn back even much more. They'd be going, oh my goodness. And that's the idea that we need to get from that. And then he, we'll wrap it up here, verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priest and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. This is God's word to us. Last point on the notes. The more you live in the reality of your identity in Christ, the more you will not just survive but truly thrive in any and every circumstance. Paul's Roman citizenship gave him certain rights and privileges, but more importantly was his citizenship in heaven. I'm going to show you a video clip, and then we're going to sing a song together, and then we'll be finished. This video clip is from a movie. It's been a while since I've shared this movie clip. It's one of my favorites. It's Les Miserables. And it's the clip where Jean Valjean has just been released from prison and he's living on the streets and so a pastor brings him into the house and, uh, and, and begins to pour mercy and grace upon him and it so changes his life. How many are familiar with the story? It's an amazing story because this is where he encounters the grace of God and his life is forever changed where he becomes a conduit of that same grace. Watch this and then we'll talk about it. Pretty amazing scene there, isn't it? So have you had one of those experiences where you didn't just see this, but you were seized? You were seized by the glory and the beauty of Jesus. Because if you have, you will never be the same. His grace is amazing. We're going to sing a song about the divine romance, how much God loves us. That God is the most satisfying reality. That in Him you're going to find eternal and infinite satisfaction like no place else. Stand with us as we sing this song. Make this song the prayer of your heart. Use this time to connect with Him. Confess the fact that you tend to misplace your identity. Put your identity in Him. 
enjoy the innumerable blessings that he provides for all of us. God bless you.